0: Welcome to uh, episode 15 of the 5 for 5 Day podcast. The idea behind 5 for 5 Day is to examine each day, each 24-hour period, with a focus on the five distinct aspects of your life. Uh, These five areas are physical, social, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual. The idea is kind of simple. Address each one of those categories in a meaningful way each day, and the chances are that that would become a pretty good day. Of course, these areas have a little crossover, Uh, Often, the activity that begins as an intellectual exercise can turn emotional or even turn spiritual. The possibilities are endless, but it does center around a pretty simple idea. The idea is to spend your days doing meaningful things. The clock is ticking and each day is finite, so you might as well consciously plan to engage in rewarding things. I love looking at this philosophy in terms of one day at a time because a day is a manageable time period. A five for five month or five for five year would not work. The end is too far off and it would lead to procrastination and it just, uh, just wouldn't work. The other good thing is that if you have a bad day, and we all do, a day where you don't do anything meaningful in those five domains, you can just forget about it and start over again tomorrow. It's pretty simple. Tomorrow is a new clean page in the notebook and everyone can make some decisions right now to make today a better day. We can all accept, accept responsibility for today, so let's going, let's get going with today's podcast. Uh, today's a special one for me, so I'm gonna get just kick, jump right into it. Start off with a question. Do you remember that when you were younger and you used to have favorites? It might've been a, a favorite movie or a TV show, maybe a favorite actor or a comedian, or it was a favorite song or a band. Maybe it was a favorite sports team or an, an individual player. Maybe you were lucky enough to have a hero. It is a strange phenomena that happens to us less and less as we get older. Uh, I want you to recall that beautiful and illogical commitment that you had to your heroes and icons of your youth. It seemed to be a method for making a personal statement about who you were. Having your preferences exemplified in a favorite became a way to define yourself and perhaps to declare yourself as an adult. Let's face it. It takes courage to declare the loyalty and commitment to the world of your uh, of your friends and family. After all, your favorite song could turn out to be a silly bubblegum hit in retrospect, or your favorite TV show can get canceled, or God forbid, your favorite sports team has, has a run of bad seasons. Maybe that declaration of loyalty is our first lesson in the world of commitment. Without a doubt, the past year has been a challenging one. Norms have turned upside down confusion about who and what we should believe and uncertainty in the future. And as an educator of children, and more importantly, as the father of three children of my own, I always look at modern dilemmas from the viewpoints of kids. I wonder how I would handle the insanity of today if I was their age. I marvel at how well my my students and especially my children have persevered. And I seek lessons from my life that may be of use to the children of today. Something to share, or something from our old lives that would benefit kids today. And over the past few days, it got me to thinking about the joy and the strength and the heartbreak and the tears and the passion for all of your favorite uh, things of youth, your youthful favorites. And it made me think of one favorite in particular, and it has a little bit to do with this being the 15th episode, but you'll figure that out by the end. So just a quick recap of um, the fanatical favorites, uh, you know, that that I grew up in a loose chronology. Mys- myself i thought back this was kind of fun you should do this uh, for me it was dinosaurs it was the jungle book it was movie monsters like dracula and frankenstein and the wolfman and the creature of the black lagoon it was godzilla yep all the way from the black and white raymond burr raymond burr godzilla to the rubber shoot japanese movies i love starsky and hutch i loved all things planet of the apes i then became a star wars kid love star wars uh KISS. KISS was my band when I was 12, 13 years old. I was a founding member of the KISS Army, and I actually uh, sent away and got the patch, so I became a a true uh, member of the KISS Army. Uh, I love Jim Morrison and the Doors. I love Marvel Comics. I love the Oakland Raiders, and I love the New York Yankees. That's the lightning round summary, and I am sure I'm missing a few, but you get the idea. I moved fast, and I dove deep into all of these things. I dove deep into each favorite with a sort of a fearless, stupid loyalty that maybe a lot of kids don't have today. At the very least, I knew what I liked and I was willing to kind of defend my territory. I knew what commitment was, even if it was for my own juvenile, my own juvenile level of commitment. It was comforting. I knew my favorites. I knew my brother's favorites. I knew all of my friends' favorites and it provided some order in the world. I grew up in a Yankee house. If you live on the East Coast, you know what that means. My grandfather and father were both lifelong Yankee fans, and we all lived together with my mom, my grandmother, and my two younger brothers. I really didn't have much of a choice in the matter. I simply followed suit and actually thought when I was a little kid that the Yankees won the World Series every year. If you kind of follow along with all the mythology of all those great players, that's just what you thought when you were, you know, five or six years old. I was shocked when I eventually learned that it didn't work that way. Baseball was always being spoken about in my house for nine months of the year in some way, shape, or form. Mostly my father and my grandfather, but there were uncles and other adult men who used baseball as a sort of small talk language that buoyed them through the spring and the summer and kind of filled their conversations. There was always talk of last night's game and this bum or that bum, predictions about tomorrow, heated debates. And, a co- and complex trivia questions that could only be answered by men with doctorates in baseball minutiae. It was a language I learned to speak and a conversation I needed to take part in. So in the summer of 1976, when I was eight years old, I began my lifelong commitment to the New York Yankees in the sport of baseball. I had seen my first Yankee game the summer before, so maybe that um, trip sparked the interest. But uh, ironically, my very first time seeing the Yankees play was not in Yankee Stadium. I grew up in New Jersey, so we're right over the bridge. But the first time I saw them play was actually in Shea Stadium, the home of the Mets. Uh, Yankee Stadium underwent a renovation in 74 and 75. So I would have to wait until 1976 to actually visit Yankee Stadium. Things kind of lined up that way perfectly for, for my Yankee fandom. In terms of Yankee history, I could not have been in a better place and at a better time to begin my time as a Yankee fan. There was a long drought of bad Yankee teams that was coming to an end, just as I was becoming old enough to understand what was going on. They last won a World Series in 62 and struggled for about a decade from the uh, late 60s to the mid-70s. So 1976, my inaugural season with the Yankees, uh, would be the best Yankee team in about 14 years. When the games were on and my pop and dad were sitting in the living room watching, I would stay. Instead of leaving like I had done in the past, now I would stay. I began to absorb that language, to hear the voices of Phil Rizzuto and Frank Messer and Bill White filled my house that summer. I knew their personalities. Messer was the straight man. Rizzuto was the, the silly, silly guy and the, often the butt of White's jokes. Uh, Phil openly rooted for the Yankees, and I never thought twice about it. I know now you're not supposed to do that, but he openly rooted for them. Um, I began to learn the names and the mannerisms of the players. The lineup was almost always consistent, same guys in the same position in the field and in the batting order every day of the summer. I began to comprehend those three numbers that popped up on the TV screen each time a player stepped to the plate, batting average, home runs, and RBIs. Those are the the measuring stick uh, for players back then. I know they've all changed now, but that's what we looked at back then. Those numbers were always spoken about with such importance, and these guys were measured against each other in exactly the same way game after game. I learned also that they could be compared the exact same way to great players of the past using those numbers. That comparison, you know, became part of the love of this. Uh, my grandfather was a quiet guy. He worked for a cement company called Callahan's in East Nork New Jersey, and uh, left for work each morning well before 5 a.m. He would sleep in the afternoon when he got home early, and then he would wake up in time for dinner. So I didn't see him much. Lived in the same house as me, but you know he was, he was working. He was home. He was sleeping. He ate dinner. He went back to bed. But there was a small miracle that happened that summer. Each day when my my grandfather would read the paper, he kind of knew I was interested in the Yankees, and he would make sure to inform me when the next Yankee game would come on. We would talk time, channel, opponent. Started to add some starting picture, pitchers in the conversation. He then showed me how to read the standing and those statistics that were printed in the paper every day. And it was the first time in my life that he was not talking to me like a child. He was talking to me the way the men on the block talk to each other via the dialect of baseball. He would complain about dumb mistakes by players. Uh, He did so much. He didn't so much as have favorite players, but just ones that he complained about the most. Uh, His favorite ones, I guess, were the ones that screwed up the least. Uh, the same thing began to happen with my father. Baseball conversations began to bridge from adults talking at me to adults talking to me. My dad would quiz me, he tested me, he included me in on those baseball debates. The last being the most powerful, uh, uh, including a debate means that to me, it meant that my opinion mattered. You know, to be included in on a debate means that whatever my opinion was, was somehow important. That was huge for the first time, uh, getting that feedback from an adult. And I'm willing to bet that most people do not remember the first time in their lives when someone honestly recognized their opinion as meaningful and respected. But for me, it was the summer of 1976, and baseball had granted me admission to that club that I was not a member of previously, and I ate it up. I read the newspaper articles. I started collecting baseball cards, memorizing the stats and the stories on the back of each. I watched as many innings as I could. It really helped that I was blessed with a a quality Yankee team to root for. And uh, it was only natural that my favorite player would emerge. And during that year, it was never really much of a debate. For me, it was the Yankee catcher Thurman Munson. Uh, Thurman had been in the league since 69. He was a, uh, a late season call up in 69. And I was only two years old that summer. So don't have any firsthand knowledge of him until the 76 season. But from all I have read, he was kind of a tough and cocky right from the start. He earned the starting catching position for the Yankees the, the following season in 1970. And he was actually named rookie of the year. He had a 302 batting average with 137 hits with 25 doubles, six homers, and 53 RBIs. And if you're not a baseball person, those numbers don't mean anything to you. But uh, that was a pretty good rookie season. Uh, but uh, And they're probably not on par with players of today's era, but the game was different back then. Uh, so, like, those kind of numbers offensively were, were pretty good. The area that Thurman truly excelled was behind the plate and the intangibles of of being a leader on the team. He was a fantastic defensive player. Uh, That rookie season, he only made eight errors in 125 games behind the plate, which is incredible. And uh, more importantly, probably, is that he handled the pitching staff as if he was a veteran of 20 seasons. He called the great game. He rarely let pitchers shake off the signs that he put down, which was uncommon for a rookie. And I would learn later that the arc of Thurman's career would resemble the return of the Yankees to greatness. So in the 70s, they you know they, they would improve during his time until 76, 77, 78. At the height of Thurman's career, that would also be the height of, of the Yankees of that decade. His play would improve every year of the 70s, and by 76, the Yankees had become a legitimate contender. Um, I love the stories from some of these guys, and I recall a quote from a teammate and a pitcher, Sparky Lyle, about Munson, which I thought was great. I remember hearing this as a kid, and I saw it recently. He said, Munson's not moody. He is just mean. When you are moody, you are nice sometimes. I really thought that was tremendous. Uh, This guy was my team's catcher. He was our three hitter for the uninitiated. uh, Hitting in the three spot in the order is is the traditional, in the traditional batting order anyway, is where you put your team's best hitter. He was the toughest guy in the field. He was 5'11", 195 pounds, squat, stocky, with that scruffy, insane 70s mustache. His uniform was always dirty, and he wore that catcher's gear like some kind of a samurai. I learned uh, another word that summer. Uh, It was a word that I would hear from announcers, my dad, my grandfather, uh, and the word was clutch. It goes a big way to describe Thurman. Not sure if people even use that word anymore, but Thurman was always described as a clutch performer. The term is enigmatic, and unlike most skills in baseball, it's unable to be measured in numbers and statistics. There were always other players in the league that had uh, better numbers than Thurman Munson, even on the team, even on the Yankees. Greg Nettles always hit more home runs. Mickey Rivers always stole stole more bases or had a higher batting average. But it was kind of undisputed that there was nobody as clutch as Thurman Munson. It meant that he did things when they mattered. He blocked the pitch in the dirt with a man on third in a close game. He would get a big hit late in the game. He'd throw out a runner who was trying to steal to end a rally. Heck, he even had 14 stolen bases in 1976 as a catcher. And uh, that's, that's pretty incredible. And there was nobody better at blocking the plate on a, on a close play at the plate when he was behind there, and it earned him the nickname, The Wall. Uh, it seemed like every time the Yankees needed a big play that summer, Thurman would come through. So watching hundreds of hours of games on WPIX, Channel 11, growing up in Harrison, reading the newspaper of my grandfather, debating players and history and strategy with my dad, Inspired to be a player of the sport that I ventured, uh, you know, I actually ventured to the trestle at the end of my block. We had a train station at the end of my block where the older boys would play uh, fast-pitch stickball. And, you know, I I, I ventured out and started to play with those kids that were, you know, 15 and 16 years old. And uh, I, I was beginning this lifelong love of baseball all while the Yankees were gifting me with this miracle season in my very first year of serious fandom. Uh, the Yankees won the East that year. Uh, they were good all summer. They faced the Kansas City Royals and the ALCS. The Royals were loaded with great players like Frank White, Hal McRae, John Mayberry. Uh, Mayberry, I could probably name that whole starting lineup too because they it was a, they were always consistent back then. But their best player, without a doubt, was this guy named George Brett who played third base. Uh, he was kind of the uh, the royal version of, um, of Thurman Munson, if you will. Uh, This rivalry will become a great one over the next five years, and this first series that I watched, my first postseason series, could not have been more exciting. The ALCS was uh, a five-game series back then, and the Yankees won one game, and then both teams traded wins until the deciding game. So it went Yankees, Royals, Yankees, Royals, until we got to a game five. Uh, Game five was uh, tense, obviously. I remember – I recall Thurman getting a real big hit early in the game, maybe the third inning – uh, to tie it at three apiece, and then the Yankees actually had a, um, a three-run lead in the eighth when George Brett stepped to the plate and hit a three-run homer to tie it. It was like, uh, you know, all the air went out of the room. It was unbelievable. So we went into the bottom of the ninth with the with the Royals, and they brought in a pitcher named Mark Latell who was one of their best relievers, to face a Yankee first baseman who was leading off the inning, Chris Chambliss. It was October of my incredible first season as a Yankee fan and a Munson fan, and I knew the Yankee lore. I had learned of Ruth and Garrick and DiMaggio, and Mantle, and Ford, and Barra, and I knew how many times they were champions, and I guess, like I said before, I just assumed that the Yankees won the World Series every year. But at this point, after the Brett home run, I have to admit I was a little terrified. I thought, oh God, it's going to be my first year as a Yankee fan, and uh, they're not going to win. Uh, but then, almost as if it was a movie script, uh, Chris Chambliss goes on to hit one of the most, one of the two of the most dramatic postseason home runs that I've ever seen to this day, which, you know, is a lot. I've watched 46 years of baseball. Uh, the other one for me is Kirk Gibson's home run uh, for the Dodgers in 1989. But this was my my first taste of a dramatic game-ending postseason home run. And I could still see this the swing if I close my eyes. The way Chambliss swung what looked to me, he always swung what looked like it was a heavy bat, and he kind of didn't control it too well. That's what the swing looked like to me. He would always wrap around his shoulders on the follow-through. Uh, the ball sailed over the right center field fence, and Yankee Stadium went absolutely insane. Uh, I think I watched this game with my grandfather. I don't think my dad was home watching this one, uh, but I remember thinking that Chambliss wasn't even going to be able to make it to home plate because so many people had stormed the field. And I was... I remember thinking, I wonder if the run's going to count if he gets tackled by fans, and uh, he doesn't—he doesn't make it around to touch the plate. It was—it was really incredible. I was one hundred percent hooked. I was invested, and my investment paid off. Pardon the pun royally. I was emotionally attached to this team, and I would be for the rest of my life. My favorite player would not win a World Series that year. The Yankees would be swept by the hated. Cincinnati Reds and their great catcher, Johnny Bench. God, how I hated those Bench Munson comparisons. Thurman could not compete with the bench numbers, and I knew that deep down, but it did not matter as I would defend Thurman to anyone who cared to listen. Thurman hit 529 in that World Series with nine hits, which was the most by any player in that series. And uh, I will note it was one more hit than Bench got. Uh, the Yankee offense. Never got going. They only scored, uh, I think, like six or seven runs in the whole four games, and I was stunned. The Yankees were swept four games to none, and the height and depth of emotion that I, I had experienced that summer was exhilarating. You know, we went from the the peak of Chambliss's home run to the depths of the uh, of the of the sweep. But I had become one hundred percent invested, and this allowed me to revel in those victories and suffer through those defeats as if I played each game myself. I assumed the lesson I learned that it was better to care, better to choose and better to commit, better to have a favorite. The Thurman Munson led Yankees did not disappoint me over the next two seasons. They added some stars like Reggie Jackson and Rich Gossage and Catfish, Catfish Hunter through free agency. They brought up a couple of great young players like Ron Guidry and got Willie Randolph in a trade. Another young guy, uh, and they had a one-game playoff uh, game against the Red Sox the next year with the Bucky Dent home run, and then they beat the Dodgers two years in a row to uh, become back-to-back world champions. A young fan could not have asked for more in the first four years of rooting for a team. Unfortunately, there was one more low to go with all of the highs. This time it would be a tragedy that had not been seen before in Yankee history since the famous Lou Gehrig farewell speech and it had to do with Thurman. Uh, Thurman was a family man, a man whose family lived in, o- in Ohio. He was an Ohio guy, uh, lived near the Canton area. So in order to spend more time with his wife and his three children, I think he had two girls and a boy, he, uh, he actually took pilot lessons and bought his own plane so he could fly in and out of New York back to uh, back to Ohio on off days and you know things like that. On the afternoon of August second, nineteen seventy nine, Thurman was in Ohio and he was practicing takeoffs and landings with his Cessna airplane. <clears throat> On the fourth landing, he lost control, and uh, he failed to reach the, the runway. The tip of his wing clipped a tree, and he kind of nosedived into the ground. And uh, Thurman died when the plane burst into flames. He didn't die in impact, I believe. You know cause of death was actually asphyxiation. Um, I remember that summer. I was at my friend Anthony's house that afternoon when his older sister came into the room and asked us if we had heard that the catcher from one of the New York baseball teams had died in a plane crash. And my first reaction, I remember vividly, was John Stearns. John Stearns was the catcher for the Mets at the time. It could could not possibly be Thurman Munson. That was, you know, I could not get that through my head. it was It was truly stunning for an eleven year old kid. And I absolutely felt as if that Yankee time period uh, and that period of my youth had actually come to an end. like it was it was that that uh, shocking to me. I had some vague memories of, of players the next day walking to attend the funeral. I remember seeing them in their suits and thinking how weird that looked. I also vividly remember the first game back after a couple of days off where the Yankees played the Orioles, and the heroics of Thurman's friend, Bobby Munser, uh, Bobby Mercer. Uh, I remember that game they, they won. Bobby Mercer hit a, uh, a double to the opposite field to put the Yankees ahead. But honestly, I, I kind of drifted away for the rest of that season, and I don't recall too much of how 1979 end, ended. Up to this point in my life, I had only ever lost two members of my extended family. I guess I was lucky. I lost two um, uncles who were actually second uncles, not direct uncles to me. Uh, The first was my uncle, Denny. This is back in 1974. Uh, Denny Rogan is actually Joe Rogan's grandfather on his father's side. And yes, the Joe Rogan of Fear Factor UFC and podcast fame. Joe and I actually were born, uh, we were buddies when we were younger. Uh, We were born six days apart and our parents were very, very close. Our fathers were best men in each other's wedding. And um, our moms were were best friends back then. Uh, I did not know my uncle Denny very well, but I do remember his passing because I had never experienced the, the death of a family member before. He lived across the street from me. Uh, the second death was my another uncle, my uncle Sal. Two years later, in 1976, I was a bit closer to him, but again, it was extended family, and I was I was very young. Uh, Thurman was the first young man, the the young guy like similar to the age of my father that I had ever seen pass. A man in the prime of his life, I'll bet nearing the back nine of his baseball career. Uh, you know, he, he was he was young in, in regular terms, but you know, baseball, you back then 30 was old. So uh, he was, he was nearing the end of his baseball career. And part of me is very glad that I I never got to see the inevitable decline of his skills as a player, that he left before that. Uh, It would have killed me to see him play for another team if the Yankees did not resign him. Uh, You know, I couldn't bear to see him in another uniform. And it sort of became that uh, live fast, die young thing in which he will forever be 30 years old, 5'11", 195-pound mustache, tough guy with the orange chest protector and the snarl on his face. That's how he'll always be remembered for me. Uh, I wore the number 15 whenever I could for the rest of my life. I actually saved this topic for this podcast because this is podcast number 15 of the five for five day podcast i'm, I'm very superstitious i guess about having that favorite number uh, much like having a, a a favorite like this podcast began uh what, that i have with this favorite number it was all because of thurman I, i'll even admit uh, my son jake's middle name is thurman i would like to personally thank my wife Tuette, for allowing that to happen uh, to allowing me to choose Jake's middle name. I, I always thought it would be cool to, to name someone after Thurman. Um, but the sadness of the loss eventually turned to pride. You know, I guess pride in the fact that I had picked a great player to be my all-time favorite. I always smile when I go to Yankee Stadium nowadays, and I still see people, you know, 30 years later, wearing their, their number 15 jerseys. I learned at a young age that it was okay to get emotionally invested, to be committed to choose a favorite, something or someone to stick with forever. It's good to care. It's good to give up a little bit of yourself to something that's a little bit bigger than you that you don't have much control over. Unfortunately, you don't get many chances to do it. My love of baseball and the Yankees and Thurman have created so much joy, so many opportunities from my first adult conversations with the two most important older men in my life my dad and my grandfather to hundreds of conversations with my other Yankee fan friends, Paul and Chuck and Pete, uh, to playing baseball and then eventually becoming a high school baseball coach and then to coaching my three children and sharing baseball memories with them. I probably have watched and talked more baseball with my wife, Joette, than any other person on earth. So uh, I thank her for that. So stay loyal, my friends. Saying yes is so much more powerful than saying no.